Well, let's open our Bibles, uh, Hebrews 12. You know, the, uh, the writer of Hebrews has pictured the Christian life as a race, spoken up in family terms, and, and then pointed us to Jesus and, and called us to action based upon the truths that we've seen. And, and now, what the writer's doing is he's driving home the point with a story about two mountains. And stand with me for God's word, Hebrews 12. We're going to read verses 18 through 24. As we read this, remember, this is God's word. God is speaking to us. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such, that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command... If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of righteous made of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And Lord, we we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for being here with us, and we pray, Lord, you would open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things from you. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. And please be seated. Why mountains? Why, why, why the, the thing about mountains? Uh, if you see the mountains, you see the, the snow that we can see. I told my family yesterday, the, those, the, the wide expanse of mountains with snow on them is the closest thing I could tell them about being in Nepal and seeing the Himalayas except for the, for the height. Uh, it, it just reminded me of that. And um, why mountains? Because these were examples that these Hebrew Christians would latch on to. They would understand. Because the two mountains were significant because of what happened at each one. One was where God gave the law. One was where God dwelt among men. So mountain number one, let's look at that first. Mountain number one is not mentioned by name. In fact, in the Greek, the word mountain doesn't even exist in that sentence. But the author is talking about Mount Sinai where Moses received the law from God, and it's implied by the words in verse 18, uh, can be touched. Verse 18 reads, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, whirlwind, blast of a trumpet, sound of which sound, everyone who heard begged that it would stop. The scene is based on Exodus chapters 19 and 20. If an animal accidentally walked onto the mountain, it would, it would contract so much of the holiness of God, it would be affected so much by the holiness of God that it would be killed, it would die, or it would need to be killed from a safe distance. Verse 20 says they couldn't bear the command. Even if a beast touched the mountain, it was going to be stoned. It couldn't stand in the presence of God. And not only were the people terrified, Moses himself 
the mediator of that covenant. Couldn't stand it either. He was overwhelmed by the experience. Verse 21 tells us that so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. I can't take it. In in Exodus 19, it kind of fills in a few of the gaps for us. Exodus 19, starting at verse 10, God says to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware, you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Verse 16 tells us it came about on the third day when it was morning. There were thunder and lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, shaking in their boots. Mount Sinai was all up in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Verse 18. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. We know what, uh, us Californians, we know what that's like. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Wow. (laughs) Um. In Deuteronomy, 19, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, uh, Moses reminded the people of something he prayed for them after their golden calf incident. Here's what he said. I was angry, uh, excuse me, I was afraid of the anger and displeasure of the Lord against you because he was going to destroy you. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as he was being killed for his faith in Jesus. As before he was killed, he was speaking. And when he spoke about God speaking to Moses, he said that Moses shook with fear and would not look. Wouldn't even look at the place where God was speaking from. And his fear in response to God's anger against the people's sin. So what does Sinai have to do with us? It seems like a fossil from the ancient past, doesn't it? More like a scene from a movie than a real-life issue for us. But actually, it could not be more relevant to how we live today. The key to understanding this passage is one verb that appears two times in these seven verses. Verse 18 has it and verse 22 has it. Each begin with this verb, approach, come. Verse 18, you have not come. Verse 22, uh, you have come. And we're not talking about geographical movement here. This is not an idea of walking to a place or or going somewhere. This is referring to a fundamental approach to God and relationship with Him. It's, It's Hebrew's common word for entering into a relationship with God. It's in the perfect tense in Greek, which indicates that the action and the relationship it symbolizes had begun and continues on. It's still in effect. 
So Sinai's significance is that it stands for one way of approaching God, one way of viewing relationship with God, how we go into the presence of God. And how we go into the presence of God matters supremely as to whether we're going to be accepted or not by God. Sinai shows us one approach to God. It stands for the insecure and unstable life of law. It stands for approaching God by law, by our works, by what we can do. In, in verse 18, we see an emphatic word, you have not. Not shows us this is not the way we're to go. But what characterizes approaching God in this way? The first thing is this, the idea of limited human effort. Limited human effort. A person who comes to God on their own merits. That person is always trying uh, to commend themselves to God, to, to earn their way to God. Saying things like, well, I, I've done my best. I'm a good person. I've tried hard. Therefore, I deserve God's favor and blessing. He owes me something for my good behavior. You heard someone talking like that before? But see, God is no man's debtor. He will be no man's debtor. He owes us nothing. If we're forgiven of our sins by Jesus, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's according to his mercy that he saves us. As Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, we we are saved uh, by grace through faith, not by our works. There's nothing we can do. But human effort is a hallmark of approaching God according to law. Now, connected to this idea of human effort is the idea of failure and futility because that's what human effort is going to lead us to. See, the Old Testament law wasn't bad. It was good. It reflected God's beauty. It reflected God's holiness. It reminded the people they could not keep it. As Galatians tells us, the law became a tutor to lead us to Christ, to show us our need for Christ, to, re- to show us and to help us to realize there is no way I can ever get myself to God on my own merits, on anything I do. It, it's, it's limiting because we're always going to fall short. As Romans 3 tells us, uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And anything we try in our own strength, that's going to fall flat. Not going to work. See, there's an, there's an inherent foolishness to trying to come to God in our own strength or our own works or something we could do to make ourselves acceptable to God. And, and it's this, we don't have any merits. <laughs> we don't have anything that, you, that we could present and say, uh, here God, look, look at what I did. Look how good it is. Everything's been tainted by sin. And so it's kind of like uh, you, you go to the bank and you try to withdraw some money and there's nothing in the bank. Or you try to use your credit card and they swipe it and they say, uh, it's been declined. There's nothing in it. We're bankrupt. So there's nothing we can do. And Paul even said uh, that as many as are of law are under a curse. If you want to approach God according to your own works, fine and dandy, but you're under a curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. If you want to come to God on your own, on your own merits, there's more to do than what you think you need to bring. Now, there's another aspect of approaching God this way, and it, it's seen on Sinai. See, when the people came up on the mountain, they couldn't touch it. They couldn't come near to it. Only Moses could come near. 
Why? Because they were so unholy. The people were in such a bad way. They were messed up. Just like we feel. Kind of, you know, unworthy to come before God, before, in His presence. But uh, the, the, the aspect of it is this. Uh, exclusion and fear. Exclusion. Sinai was terrifying. The people and Moses were in awe of God, but they were also scared to death of Him. Kind of like how anybody my age or older felt about their dad growing up. We were in awe of him and we were scared to death of him. Um, we should always approach God with an attitude of, of awe, of, of worship, of, of reverence. But, but terror, on the other hand, uh, is not a characteristic of approaching God by grace. Reverence and awe, yes. Terror, be scared to death of him, no. Anything that, uh, that belongs to us uh, approaching God by our own merit has no assurance with it. There's no assurance that we'll be accepted. And, and, and in Old Testament, Sinai fear was the uh, dominant theme. That was the theme. that It, it permeated it. And, and, and if you think about the Hebrews that, that this was being written to, uh, these, these first century Christians that were just trying to make it, and they were, you know, being persecuted, and they were fearful of a lot of things. They were fearful of, of being rejected and even economic loss because of that. And, and what happened in their life is they stopped trusting God fully because of their fear. They feared things like martyrdom, being killed, and they had seen that happened to others but if they went back to judaism which some of them were tempted to do and why the writer is speaking so strongly to them they were going back to the law they were going back to judgment they were going back to exclusion from god's blessings in christ and so mountain number one signifies one way to approach god and it's according to law and it's one we're not to follow it's one that is no longer viable and, and there is hope, there is another mountain, and, and it's hope for us who are so susceptible to approaching God by our works, rather than, than by Christ's works. You see, in contrast to Sinai, there is Zion, which is named in verse 22. Zion. In biblical times, Mount Zion was the site of a, of a Jebusite stronghold that David captured and where he lived in the seventh year of his reign he made it the religious focus of his kingdom uh, he he put the ark of god there which which symbolized the presence of god and and zion became known as as the earthly dwelling place of god in first kings it tells us that the city of jehovah the city that jehovah had chosen out of all the tribes of israel to put his name there, Zion was synonymous with Jerusalem. Later, Solomon built his temple on a hill uh, to the north of Zion. And he put the ark there as well. And, and the name Zion was expanded to ex- include this place as well. And, and practically speaking, it was synonymous with Jerusalem. And earthly Zion was the meeting place of the tribes of Israel. But we're talking here about the heavenly Zion. And the heavenly Zion 
is the meeting place of all those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Zion signifies not the earthly, but the heavenly. It's the dwelling place of the secure and stable life of grace, as opposed to the insecure and unstable life of law. See, when you come to God by grace, you, you become a part of a community, uh, which is a foretaste, a, a, a taste of heaven itself. And uh, sometimes we think of the church with all its problems because people are involved, because <laughs> we're a part of it. And we, we, we forget that this is a foretaste of eternity and the, uh, in a sense, we're provisionally living in that, that new city, the uh, city of God. And, and all who believe are welcomed to that city. There is no exclusion for those who believe. Because Christians don't come to a sacred mountain that can't be touched, that you've got to tiptoe around and, and make sure you don't upset things. We've come to the heavenly dwelling place of God, the eternal Mount Zion. And, and by virtue of us accepting the gospel message about Jesus, we come into the spiritual realm, which is spoken of in verses 22 to 24. You have come to this mountain. And the word, the word but in verse 22 balances out the word not in verse 18. We're not to go to Sinai. We're to go to Zion. Don't get stuck down on Sinai where you're going to be all afraid all the time. Go to Zion where there is confidence and, and security and a welcome. When we approach God according to grace... That's the way it is. And it's characterized by, by rest in God's work. Unparalleled rest and security in God's work, not human effort. No more toiling for acceptance. We've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Interesting, you've got the mountain and the city there. The mountain and the city of the living God. Heavenly Jerusalem. Heaven itself. God's dwelling. In Revelation 21, we get a little picture of, of what that's going to be like. Revelation 21 and verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne and think about this. At Sinai, they heard a loud voice, and they wanted nothing more of it. But in the new Jerusalem, the voice of God, we won't be able to get enough of it. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning. Or crying. Or pain. Because the first things have passed away. That's where we're going to be. And while we're here on earth, we've got that Sabbath rest for the people of God that we studied in Hebrews chapter 4. That Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God who have rested from their works and are trusting in His. We said, no more. I'm not going to go to my works anymore. That won't get me anywhere. That got me nowhere. I'm going to trust in God's works. We can rest assured in the loving 
arms of our Heavenly Father. Zion is also characterized by joy. Real joy. Not, uh, not fake joy. A lot of us get really good about, they, we get really good at, at crying and smiling. <laughs> you notice that? It happens with younger kids sometimes. They'll, 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 no offense kids, but I'm blowing your cover again. But uh, kids will get good sometimes at crying to get something. I always say to little Sophie, who's five now, I say, Sophie, you're not going to get it for crying, even though I really want to give it to you because you're so cute when you cry. Uh, you're not going to get it if you cry. And, and then also we, we get really good at smiling to cover it up, the pain, the agony even of loneliness that we might feel. And in a group like this, sometimes we'll come in and we have a smile on, but it'd be, it's the furthest thing from what's going on in here. We're really good at that. But see, in, in Zion, I don't even know how to describe it. It's real joy. We've, we've, we've experienced bits and pieces of that here on earth. But there will be unending joy. Verse 22 tells us we've come to, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And wherever angels are present in Scripture, God's usually there too. Uh, like the 10,000 of the holy ones that were with God at the giving of the law at, at Sinai. Like the thousand thousands that Daniel saw serving God around his throne. But there's joy in the presence of God. And, and especially when someone turns to Jesus. When someone comes, what did Jesus say? He said, I tell you the truth, there's more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents than over 99 that don't think they need any repentance. You see, we're thirsty for joy. And only God can give us that joy. Only Jesus can quench that thirst. There's nothing that we own that can quench that. There is nothing that we can acquire that can quench that. But what do we do? We go around buying up as much plastic as we can to try to fill that void. And it won't work. Because as soon as we get it, the joy or whatever it is is gone. It's so momentary. It's so fleeting. Relationships, possessions, accomplishments, they can't satisfy our souls. God created us to be loved by Him. And only in Jesus can we find that joy that God uh, intends for his loved ones. The believers uh, will experience unending joy in the presence of God. And it's supposed to start right here and now. Now, something else that, appro- uh, that uh, characterizes approaching God by grace, it's It's identity unchanging identity. You see, when you came to Sinai, when you come to God on your own merits, you're never sure if you'll be accepted and you're pretty sure you won't. You don't know who you are. In fact, you come to Sinai and it's, who are you? And why are you here? You come to Zion and you're known. You come to Zion and you're secure. You come to Zion and you belong. Not just to the church, but to heaven where your name is written down. 
you are enrolled. Like when you go to enroll your kids in school or you get them on a sports team. Or how about this? You try out for a sports team and you make the team. Well, we've made, believers in Jesus have made the team and we won't get cut. We won't get cut. We don't have to fear. The fear is gone. There's an identity. In verse 23, it says that we've come to the general assembly. An assembly of the redeemed. The assembly of those who've been born again by trusting in the, in the finished work of Jesus. Someone who believes. We've come to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Their names are written in heaven. You know, uh, January 1 just passed and some of your insurance companies called and said they got open enrollment going on. See, there's open enrollment going on right here. And it's happening and it's not exclusion. It's open enrollment season till Jesus comes. We come to God, the judge of all men. Now, you get a little afraid when you think judge. I know. God, the judge of all. You could even read the Greek, uh, the judge, God of all. But God, and this, he's a judge. It shows how, if if you've ever stood before a judge, praise God, I haven't. But if you ever stood before a judge, he's going to make a verdict. And if you stand there guilty of a crime, you're probably going to get convicted and sentenced to a consequence. But this shows us how serious our response to God really is. It's no laughing matter. His assessment counts. His verdict matters. He's the judge. In verse 13 of chapter 4, he's the one with whom we have to do. Before whom our inmost being lies wide open. No hiding. In chapter 10, verse 30, we're told it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is our refuge and strength. But the intimacy of our relationship with him is mixed with awe of his perfect holiness. We come to God, the judge. And we've come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. All the the faithful who are with the Lord now. All those who were listed in Hebrews 11 as people of faith. And those that have gone before us. And in verse 24, we see that we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, and he was just as afraid as everybody else. But Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and he provides us who were lost and without God in the world with a future and hope. Something to look forward to, not something to dread. See, we were on a crash course for hell. And Jesus intervened, rescued us. Some of us were getting a little bit singed, but Jesus rescued us. He brought us out of debt into life. See, if you don't go through the mediator, you will meet the judge, (laughs) you will be sentenced by the judge for not keeping the law. You want to come to God on on your own works? Again, fine and dandy, but you will face the judge and he will convict you of not keeping everything. 
But see, there's a new law in town. It's a law of love. It's a law of, of liberty. It's a law of freedom in Christ. It doesn't lead to slavery. It leads to freedom. We've, we've come also to the sprinkled blood. I know we're getting a little bit uh, queasy around blood. I can't even watch when my blood gets taken out of my arm. But we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Better. Our hearts are said in verse 22 of chapter 10 to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That God removes our guilt and the barrier of our sin between us and Him. Uh, To draw near to God through Jesus means to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, as chapter 10, verse 19 told us. But see, the blood of murdered Abel cried out. It cried out in protest for vindication over an unjust murder. But the the blood of Jesus speaks a message of cleansing, of forgiveness, of, of peace, and of life. To all who believe. There's huge contrast between Sinai and Zion. Huge. Sinai was terror. The people wanted no part of it. They begged for God not to talk anymore. But the images also were highly impersonal. Things like fire and storm and and wind and gloom and warning. And everything about Sinai screamed, stay away, keep out, no contact, don't come any closer. Kind of like the car alarm that says, you know, stay away from the perimeter. Just get away. No entrance. And the covenant had to be ratified from a distance because the people were so unholy. But the emphasis was on the unworthiness of the people and on God's judgment on their sins. But on the other hand, you have Zion. In huge contrast, which presents a picture of complete joy and, and um, excitement. Very personal and relational images, too, with Zion. Uh, God himself, the, the gathering of angels, the, the assembly of the firstborn, the, the spirits of those who have gone to be with the Lord, and our Lord Jesus. Very, very personal uh, feeling to Zion. And everything about Zion says, come, you're welcome, enter, uh, be a part of this community. There's, there's no better place to be. Sinai means human effort, fear, futility, exclusion. Zion means rest, security, identity, joy. To come into God's presence at Sinai was to die. To come into God's presence at, at Zion is to live really live see we have this way of approaching god that that uh, it's based on what we do rather than what god has already done in christ it's the human effort thing instead of trusting god we all do it to one degree or another and we start thinking you know it's the the things i do that that uh, or don't do that keeps me right with god and uh, if, if we don't do it we feel guilty and even condemned unacceptable we almost get superstitious about it. Keep doing the same routine because God's blessing this. And if, I, if, I, if only I pray and if only I read my Bible and 
with, with, you know, every morning at this time for this amount of time and I read it with my family and I go share my faith with people and I, I do this and that and if I do all the right things that I think I'm supposed to do, uh, then I'll be accepted by God. And if we don't do them, we don't feel accepted. See, that's not true. God doesn't want us to do those things out of obligation or because we think we have to to keep, keep this kind of like keeping the, the plate spinning so he'll accept us. But that's how we live. See, God wants us to do what we do out of love. It's a perspective thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's the reason we do things. It's a motivation thing. He wants us to do them out of love in his strength, not our own. For his pleasure, not for right standing with him. Because if we do it for right standing with him, we are living according to law. It's amazing how much we live by law and not, and not by grace. I've been asking myself this question. What do I do purely out of love for God with no expectation of repayment? What do I do purely out of love for God towards God or other people with no expectation of getting something for doing it? Boy, don't we need the the preaching of the word of God. We need the gospel every day. We need the book of Hebrews too, don't we? (laughs) Um, Hebrews is an extended sermon chock full of truth to comfort us and to, to challenge us and to keep us going in the midst of any storm, in the midst of any fear or doubt. You see, that fledgling first uh, century community was facing uh, doubts and fears and persecution and trouble and trial that shook them to the very core of their being and they came face to face with the question, How can we keep going without throwing in the towel? How can we do this? How can we do this Christian life? A lot like us. There's a lot of parallels. And the answer is that, that life's a journey. Life's a journey and the key is to keep our eyes on Jesus in a sustained and long term way. And when we do that, we stop trying to make ourselves pleasing to God and simply rest in his goodness and love. In Christ, we're called to grace, we're called to joy, we're called to relationship. He doesn't relate to us anymore on the basis of our sin in Christ, but on the basis of what he's done to set things right. And so we can approach him boldly and, and freely and with confidence. And uh, you know, as we close here, I would say this. I think that the key to understanding that is one little phrase here in this passage. It's a little phrase, you could miss it, or you could just get a little, it could, it could blow your mind. It's the phrase, church of the firstborn. Church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. See, the cultural context of being firstborn was one of, was one of family, not individual status and wealth. See, to protect the family name and the family status and wealth, the father would give all he had to the firstborn son. Not for him to use on his own, for his own, you know, pleasure, but so he would share it with the rest of the family. He would be the protector of the rest of the family. 
And the firstborn son was doted over, was loved immensely by the father. And uh, if you think about how this all came about, even biblically speaking, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, to the Tower of Babel, when the downward spiral of man's sin had just sunk to the deepest level. And then God called Abraham, Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God intervened. And uh, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he and, and Sarah had the promised son Isaac, and Isaac and Rebekah in turn had the two sons Esau and Jacob. And Esau was the firstborn. We saw that last week. And Jacob dressed up like him. He dressed up like him, pretending to be someone he was not to get the blessing. We do that too. We disguise ourselves in, in all sorts of ways to try to get God's blessing. And it results in no blessing. The blessing comes through Jesus. He is the firstborn, preeminent over all creation. But this verse says, we've come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That is not talking about Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn, preeminent over all creation. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But he became a curse for us so that we would get the blessing. Jesus dressed up like us so he could get our curse so that we could be dressed up like him and get his blessing. And in Christ we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So in God's family, everyone's a firstborn. It's the church of the firstborn. We're all firstborn. We all enjoy the benefits and the blessing and the status and all that comes with it of being the firstborn. And we live in Zion. We live in Zion. We're citizens of heaven. We're children of the king. That's our identity. Now and for eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray that uh, the joy that we experience because of what you have done would characterize our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.